Today we're continuing in our sermon series of taking off the mask, looking at stories where Jesus came into contact with somebody. And even in the briefest of moments, sometimes over a long period of relationship, sometimes just in a few seconds, Jesus was able to interact with that person by seeing behind the facade that they would put forward. And it was in being truly seen, it was in being truly known, that those people felt that freedom that comes with being accepted just as we are. So we've been going through these stories, recognizing that as we take off our mask with Jesus, as we take off our masks with one another, that there is more freedom and more depth and more love and more hope to be experienced in this life than maybe we had first thought. So we're going to be looking at Matthew 8, verses 5 through 13. Yes, the cough is still here. No, I do not have a cough drop. Yes, you might still have to wait for me to do whatever it is that I'm doing. It's okay. We managed it well last year. We'll manage or last week. We'll manage it well here. So this is Jesus. He has just healed a man from leprosy. He's just given his really long sermon talking about how we shouldn't be judging others, how we don't need to worry about how all we need to do is ask and seek and knock. He's been doing all of this, and then as he comes down from the mountainside, he does this healing, and then he encounters the centurion. Says, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? In other versions, it says, I will go and heal him. Depends on how that's translated. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. And that one, come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, He was amazed and said to those following him, Truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go. Let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that very hour. How many of you have ever heard this story of the centurion before? Just raise your hands for me. Yeah. Sip time. Hang on. This has been one of my favorite stories in scripture from the first time that I ever read it. I've always loved this passage in the Bible. It's not a story that's included in the regular preaching lectionary, and I can't recall ever hearing a sermon on it um, throughout my time of attending church, and I realized as I was preparing for this sermon that I had never preached on it either. But I remember so vividly the first time that I read this passage, I was a young college student. I was about four years into this journey of trying to figure out what I thought about Christianity. 
I hadn't grown up going to church on Sundays as a child. I could count on one hand and have fingers left over the number of times that I attended Sunday school as a kid. And I had to do it mostly when I visited my grandma in Indiana before I convinced my parents to let me, to let me stay with them during the sermon rather than being the only unchurched kid from California in a rural uh, Midwestern Sunday school room, which as you could imagine, never boded very well for me. So what I'm trying to say was that I was starting this journey with, about Christianity from this position of skepticism and a position of doubt, sort of the kind of skepticism and doubt that we have as young adults. I was starting my journey toward Christianity from that position of skepticism and doubt rather than starting it from a position of childlike familiarity or childlike comfort of having those memories of church being a safe, loving place. So when I first read this story about the centurion, I was in this place where I had found a lot of things about Jesus to be really, really compelling. The acceptance of people that were often perceived by society to be unacceptable. The unshakable vision of a world that was originally created to be something more than we could see. Something eternal, more generous, more loving than I had ever known. And a deep mysticism of God's unknown mystery coupled with this pragmatism of having to live our day-to-day lives in deference to this unseen mystery. I, I found those compelling about Jesus. I was in this place where I found Jesus compelling, but where I also found a lot of things about religious people to be less compelling. It was a feeling that followed me throughout my time in ministry and even through that first time, my first call serving a church. How was it that Jesus could be so inclusive and inspiring and yet the people who followed Jesus or led God's people could be so judgmental and so hypocritical? It really messed with me. It messed with me right from the get-go. But that's why I think I fell in love with this story about the centurion Jesus from the start, because I could sympathize with the guy who was enthralled by Jesus, who believes that Jesus could bring wholeness and healing, and yet didn't want all of Jesus' friends to be hanging out at his house. I got that. I could understand that. I felt like I could understand the guy who wanted to know Jesus as he understood and as he experienced Jesus and hoped that he could do all of that while also staying in the world that he knew and loved. Maybe even more than that, I love that Jesus respected this guy's desire. That after the centurion rejects Jesus' offer to come to the house, right? Jesus says, hey, I'm going to come to your house. And the centurion's like, no, 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 no. After he's rejected, Jesus then praises this man for being a man of great faith. It gave me hope that this centurion, even though he hadn't left everything as the disciples had done to follow Jesus, even though he wasn't Jewish, even though he wasn't part of that religious culture, he didn't know, let alone understand those rules that come with being religious. Even then, he was still seen and praised by Jesus for experiencing faith in the deeply personal terms of his life. The centurion was still expressing faith and devotion in the ways that he knew how, 
That's what's happening here in this passage, you see. Because whereas the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law, and even where the disciples and some of the lowest rung of the temple order, whereas those people would express them their faith in first century dogmatic terms, they would say things like, we believe because we follow Moses. We believe because Abraham is our father. We have faith because we know that we are the chosen people of God, right? They would, those are first century dogmatic terms that have not even first century, they've continued on. Whereas many of the people around Jesus would use this religious dogma to express their faith, the centurion is expressing faith just in the way of his life, just through the things that he knew. After all, he was a man of authority, he says. He knew that within the territory that he controlled, he could tell anyone to do anything and it would get done. And he translated that to what he saw in Jesus. Jesus appeared to have authority too. He knew, he saw, Jesus appeared to have the authority to control the miraculous, to direct these unseen forces of creation. And so in common sense for the centurion's terms, just as the centurion could direct those within his control to do what he wanted to be done, so could Jesus. The centurion is expressing his faith by talking about how he sees Jesus' work. He could understand Jesus in the terms that he himself understood. But I think the part that leads me to believe, the part that I think is the most admirable about this exchange between Jesus and the centurion I think that the part of that centurion trusting Jesus is probably the most miraculous because I think it takes a lot for someone who is accustomed to wielding authority to recognize when their authority has reached the limit. I would see this a lot with the doctors that I worked with when I was in seminary Maybe some of you know, maybe you don't, but as part of our training as pastors within the Presbyterian tradition, we're required to work as chaplains in a hospital for about three months. It's called Clinical Pastoral Education, CPE. And I did my CPE training at Robert Wood Johnson in New Brunswick, New Jersey. It's a really large teaching hospital. I was assigned to the neurological floor and I was assigned to the head trauma ICU. I also had to cover the um, level one trauma unit for 24 hour stints about once a week. And so that meant that the majority of the doctors that I interacted with on a daily basis were brain doctors and they were excellent at their jobs, excellent at their jobs. And boy, did they know it. These supervising doctors, they had full authority, full reign over their floors and over all of us, nurses, techs, chaplains. We all made sure that we did not get in their way. If we did, we heard about it. We made sure we didn't get in their way, that we didn't impede the work that they were trying to do, that we stayed within the bounds of what has been set for us. And the doctors clearly liked this spoken and unspoken authority that they wielded. I think as chaplains, we might have seen some of their enjoyment of that authority more than some because there, even though there were um, times where chaplains were required to be present in certain moments, 
like when there was a trauma patient being brought through emergency, a chaplain had to be there. There would be those doctors who were very quick to determine us as being non-essential to their work and would relegate us to a corner or to a doorway rather than incorporating our gifts as part of that care team. However, there was one moment in particular that 99% of the doctors that I worked with could not handle well. And they struggled to manage this skill by their own authority. Almost universally, the doctors struggled to tell loved ones when their patient had died. By law, chaplains could not tell family members when their, family, when their patient had died. It was a violation of HIPAA. But we as chaplains were required to be present when the doctors told them that the loved one had passed away, and then we as the chaplains were supposed to follow up with the necessary support. And I totally understand why the hospital had this policy, because time and time and time again, I watched doctor after doctor after doctor struggle to say the words. I had one doctor who refused to say the word died, which meant that even though he had been talking to the family for a full 15 minutes, once he left the room, the family looked at me and said, so does that mean he's going to be waking up soon? He couldn't manage to say it. He was the only person with the authority to say it, but he couldn't manage it. It's not that the doctor didn't have the ability to speak. It's not that he wasn't able to say, to conjure up the words. It's not that he didn't know the technical language to explain how they had died. But even within all of his authority to be the one to share the news, he didn't have the ability to do it well. He possessed all the authority, but he refused to share it when his authority surpassed his ability. Being a person of authority and at the same time recognizing the limits to our own capacity is really, really difficult. But the centurion did it. The centurion did it and we can follow his example. That centurion, he could have called in the best military doctors for his companion. He could have appealed to the officials who were higher than he was to get more resources. He could have stood over the bedside of his companion and over those doctors and barked orders until he was blue in the face. Maybe he did all that. But exerting all of his authority, even to the fullest extent, wouldn't make his companion healthy again. His authority had surpassed his ability, and he knew it. And that's why he called in Jesus. Because Jesus was the one who could bring the healing, who had the authority in a way that the centurion didn't. Even though this person was his servant, the centurion couldn't have control over this part of his life. Friends, the good news for us today in Scripture is in this story about the centurion because we come to the edge of our authority all of the time. We see it in particular when we come to a place where we just don't know if we can love that person, where we don't know if we could forgive that person, where we don't know if we could accept that person. We come to the edge of our authority over our lives all of the time. And then we suffer for it, right? Because if we could forgive that person, if we could bring in that person, if we could love that person, then there would be more fullness 
for them and for us, then we wouldn't feel the brokenness that we feel. But it's almost like we can't. We've come to the edge of our authority. But there's good news because it turns out that we can call in Jesus for those moments. That when we think that we cannot forgive, that we've reached the edge of our ability to do it, then if we were to trust that Jesus Christ has the authority and the ability far beyond ours, we can walk right up to that edge and let Jesus lead us to the rest. Friends, we come to the edge of our authority in our lives all of the time. We don't always realize it. We try to hang on to the authority even though our ability doesn't allow us to do it well. So I encourage you to join me this week as we go out into the courtyard to participate as the global church, as we go out into our lives to participate in a diverse world. I encourage you to join me in recognizing when the limits of our authority have surpassed our ability and to be able to surrender our authority into the hands of Jesus Christ to know that even if we think we can't forgive, even if we think we can't love, even if we think we can't bring them in, even if we think we can't be more generous, even if we think that we cannot do whatever is there or we won't do whatever is there, that Jesus Christ will meet us at that edge and will draw us out, expanding our ability by the Spirit. Why don't we pray? God, we are grateful for the way that you have called us to be your one church in the world. We pray that as we go out into the courtyard to join the rest of our church worshiping today, that we will also, in the same spirit, go and join the church globally that is meeting around your table today by invitation, a collective act of surrendering our authority and accepting yours of surrendering our desire to control everything, to earn everything, to have everything that is due to us, surrendering that to accept your invitation that is given to us not because of anything we have done, not because of who we are, but because of who you are. Help us to extend that same invitation to others, particularly in the moments where we really think it can't be done. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.